I think it would be fair to agree that nothing lasts in our world, particularly in our modern Western world. Um, I have a nice laptop. I was very pleased to get it. Um, I managed to persuade the elders that uh, paying a bit more for a nice laptop would be a good investment of their, their, um, uh, the church's money because it would last a bit longer. And Martin Grote nearly fell off his chair laughing. Um, uh, we just live in a, consumer, a, a, a consumables age, don't we? I mean, jobs don't last. Um, Tony Reid, who uh, died just a, a few weeks ago, um, he was in work for the same company from school till retirement. And that was pretty common in his generation. It's completely extraordinary now to even think that anyone might do that. Friendships don't last. Community doesn't last. We, we live, East Oxford is a constantly shifting sort of sea of people coming and going and we... We, we're delighted if we know someone and enjoy their company for three years, really. We just have to accept that though they may be precious to us, we'll move on, they'll move on, and it will be in a few years' time reduced to Christmas cards or Facebook birthday greetings. That's, that's just the way it is. More profoundly, other relationships like marriage don't last I think you could uh, make a good case for the, for the sort of expansion of the sort of romantic um, extravagance of marriage ceremonies being in some sense a compensation for that niggling doubt. I just don't know whether it'll last. It only lasts so long as the both of us love each one or other and we have no control over that. And so we'll celebrate our romantic relationship now but it's no... There's no expectation it'll last till death. Well, that, I think, generates an attitude, attitudes of, of insecurity. We just don't feel safe and secure in our relationships, in our work, and so on. And it, and it generates superficiality as well. Um, um, because uh, this person that we know they'll be the other side of the world in a, in a few years' time. I don't have a long-term commitment to the job as long as I satisfy people today and do a good enough job to get a good promotion somewhere else, that'll be fine. That's the world we live in. Well, Christian life is absolutely the opposite of that. That's what the Apostle Paul has been working up to over uh, these chapters in part. It's not, I'll be a, you, you can be a Christian now and who knows what the future holds. It's not, I feel safe and secure in God's love now, but I don't know whether I'll be safe and secure next week or next month. If we are Christians here, then what God first did in our hearts was a first promise of something that he will continue on not only through the whole of our lives but on into eternity. Christian faith lasts. Christian life lasts. 
And that is something actually we're all longing for in our, in our, our, our short-term turbulent world. Paul put it this way at the uh, beginning. Do you remember back in Romans 1 verse um, 17 as he announced what he was going to talk about, the gospel, <coughs> and he says it's a, about a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the end of Romans 1.17, those who are righteous by faith will live. That's how we translated it all those weeks ago. Those who are righteous by faith will live. And I've already said this evening, he explains what it means to be righteous by faith in Romans one. 1 to 4. To be right with God, we need to have faith in Christ. But the, 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 the last clause is the, is the substance of what he's talking about in Romans 5 to 8. What does it mean that those people will live? And now, now he's, he's going to be telling us what it means is perhaps more than we could ever imagine. It means that we are absolutely secure in the life that God has given us now and we are absolutely certain to inherit eternal life after death. They really will live. All Christians will live now and in eternity. Let's unpack then how he explains that in these verses in Romans 8. The first thing that he wants to say, say to us in verse 28 is that, is that now, right now, God is actively working for our good in, uh, his, uh, in our lives. We know, he says, verse 28, that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. In all things, in absolutely everything, in the things that we immediately perceive as being a blessing from God, and the things that come to us as a terrible trial and a difficulty, God works in all things for the good of those who love him. That's, that, that, that's an extraordinary truth. And remember, because Dan was uh, uh, telling you last week, that he has put that right after the most profound exploration of the fact that this world is not as it should be. We groan. The Holy Spirit, in a sense, um, utters groans on our behalf. That words... Uh, words uh, cannot express. There is a profound and strong and real exploration of this world not being as it should be and therefore um, that we groan. But now right after that he says, however God is working in all things for the good of those who love him. We, we must hold those thing, two things in tension um, uh, uh, with one another to try and grasp what he's saying. He is, really is saying the world is not as it ought to be and therefore there is trouble and difficulty and groaning. Groaning that is even echoed by God. And he really is saying God is good 
and God is in control and God is bringing good things out of those, those same events. And there are errors we can get into. So, for instance, sometimes um, people start to um, uh, will read that verse, Romans 8.28, as if Paul is saying, actually, if only we could see it, everything is intrinsically good. The suffering we endure is just because we can't see how good these things are that God, uh, God is bringing into our lives. And, and, and Scripture in general, and Paul just before, has been saying, no, evil is real. He is not saying evil is not real. Evil, evil is so real it makes God groan. 8.26 The Spirit himself intercedes for us with word through wordless groans. So alongside God working for good we must uh, continue to affirm evil is real. Another, though, equally erroneous view that some people have is that they just, they just see evil as a sort of um, uh, equal and opposite force to God or as a, as a sort of independent force from God. And God, because he's good and powerful, does battle against that evil and God perhaps um, uh, comes in after the event and sorts out some of the problems associated with evil. But evil stands there um, as, a, as a real, autonomous, independent force uh, uh, against God. And the Apostle is saying, no, evil does not have that degree of autonomy. It is not after things that happen that God works uh, the good, for the good of those who love him. It is in the same things that are also evil. Uh, scripture says that uh, uh, again and again. Um, just glance with me, for instance. I'll take you to one classic example in Acts chapter 4. This is, uh, uh, well, let's start at, at verse 26. Um, they're, they're talking about um, uh, the evil that was done to Jesus. The kings of the earth rise up, just as predicted. The rulers band together against the Lord, Lord and against his anointed one, Psalm 2. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to inspire against, sorry, conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Who decided that Jesus should die? Herod and Pontius Pilate and God. Was it an evil that Jesus died? Absolutely it was. It was an evil plot by Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel who conspired against Jesus. It was the most evil thing that has ever happened in the whole world. The Son of God, God the Son, being killed. But it was the best thing that has ever happened in the whole world as well. 
Because God had decided that through that event and through those evil plots he should save people like us. In the same event, do you see, there is evil going on and there is good going on. And we find that again and again and again in Scripture. God, God acts concursively with evil agents in the world. The same event is used in the purposes of God for good whilst it's being used in the purposes of evil people or Satan himself for evil. Remember Joseph's speech at the end of Genesis, Genesis chapter 50, verse 10, I think it is, where uh, Joseph has been sold into slavery by his brothers and now he's reunited by his brothers and they're terrified that he's going to take revenge on them. And he says, no, 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 you don't understand what was going on. You intended it for evil. God intended it for good. The same event again, him being sold into slavery in Egypt, was intended by the brothers for evil and they're morally responsible for that. But, God, but evil wasn't out there as some independent force that God was desperately trying to catch up with and sort out. God, at the same time, intended that same act for good. Got me? So that's what God's doing in your life. when difficult trials happen. It's not that you should only see good in those difficulties. No, that's, that's not the case. There is real evil in those difficulties. Again and again and again we see it. And that's to be groaned about and mourned for. But there is never anything, says this verse, that happens to a believer, which does not also have within it a good intention from God. Never anything. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Let's clarify that a little bit before we explore even further. It is a specific good. Verse 29. Those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That is the good that he is wanting to do in your life. It's not every good, you see. Just because you want the good of wealth doesn't mean that God is going to give it to you. Just because you want the good of of health or a relationship or whatever doesn't mean to say that God is going to give it to you. He is focused. He has one good that he is focused on, but it is the most glorious one imaginable. He has chosen you to be a brother or sister of Jesus, to be adopted into the family of God, and he is determined before you meet him face to face, that he will do everything that he can to conform you to the likeness of Jesus. It is that specific good 
that he is focused on. It is described um, again in verse 30 as uh, the end of a long chain that we'll look at in uh, uh, just, just next, but we'll go to the end of it before we look at the chain itself. It is described as being glorified. Those he justified at the end, verse 30, he also glorified. That's the good that he intends for you. To be shaped to be like Jesus. To be prepared for glory. And he has established that unbreakable chain in order to do that. From eternity past, um, those God foreknew. Some people say that uh, God foreknowing people from the long distant past is just a passive knowing that he saw the choices that we would make and so he knew us in advance. That doesn't fit with scripture and to be honest it doesn't fit with this chain. In scripture if God knows someone that means he's already brought them to himself. He foreknew us from eternity past and then he predestined us from eternity past. Those God foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. There it is, you're coming into the family. But here goes the chain as well. And those he predestined, he also called. So there was a time when God stepped into your life and he called you, not in a way that said, oh, please come here and we could walk away. No, when scripture talks in these terms, when the Apostle Paul especially talks of people being called, it is a summons. It is an irresistible summons. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. He gave you that faith that Romans 1-4 to was talking about that meant that you are right with God. You are justified through faith in Christ's death. And those he justified... Romans 1 to 4, he also glorified it. Fascinatingly, he used this same tense, though it's heading on into the future. It seems to give us the sense of the same absolutely settled certainty. You are as good as glorified from God's point of view. Those who are righteous by faith will live. Those who are justified will be conformed to the likeness of Jesus and will be glorified. God has established an unbreakable chain to do that. Well, just, just, just reflect on some of that with me for a minute before we go at reasonable speed to the end of a chapter. I mean, these are extraordinary, important um, a profound truth. There is nothing that has happened to you, is happening to you, or will ever happen to you which God will not use for your good. It may be painful. It may be evil. But it's never something that cannot be used for your good. Let, let, let's be clear, it is a sober thing that Paul says that does not apply to people who are not believers. For the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. 
There is no such promise for people who aren't believers. In their case, the evil that comes upon them may be simply the precursors of that final, ultimate judgment and separation from God that the Bible says is for all those who do not choose Christ. So it is not a promise for all human beings, but it is a promise for all believers. It's really, really important to realise God's agenda is not the same as our agenda for our good as well. You know, I, I could probably list you a good number of things that would have been my agenda for my good that have not happened in my life. Am I disappointed? Yeah. At times. But not ultimately. Because I've seen over time how God uses those things to create in me things that simply couldn't have come except through disappointments and hard circumstances. That is the way God works. His agenda is not our agenda. Let me say to you as well, these truths are massively, massively good news. They completely turn on its head how we see this world. It is not a place where evil is rampant and rules over our lives. Evil does not rule. It is the most extraordinarily good news, but it can be extremely tough as well. Perhaps one of the toughest uh, instances of it in the Bible is mentioned in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 30 to 32. Might be worth just turning to it for a minute, cross-referencing slightly more than usual. And it's on from Romans, despite the fact that I turned back from Romans. It's that time of the evening. Um, There the Apostle is talking about how God has been disciplining the church for their sin at the communion table in particular, in not caring for one another. That is why, verse 30, many among you are weak and ill and a number of you have fallen asleep. So he's saying here that God has allowed some to die as a discipline for their sin. But look look on at how he speaks. If we were discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. In other words, he's saying, God has let those people die because he knows, he could see the trajectory thereon, and he was determined because they belonged to him, he was not going to allow them to be condemned eternally. So determined he was prepared to take their lives early. Shocking, isn't it? And yet God is that determined to conform us to the likeness of Christ and to bring us to glory. 
And as Paul wisely says in verse 31, if we realised how focused God is on that, we would judge ourselves before he has to bring some judgment on us. Now it is good news, but it is tough, indeed really sombre news in one sense. Our duty as Christians, therefore, when we meet suffering, is alongside the groaning, and that is appropriate, as Dan said last week. Say, how can I learn through this? What does God want to teach me in this circumstance? Because there is no evil that will come to me that God does not have a good intention in my life. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. And so, says the Apostle, God's intention is to give us all things. Verse 31, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who did, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? He gave us Jesus. That is how committed he was. And if he gave his one and only son, do you think he's going to hold back now in giving us all things? No, he's not. There will be tough times but it is his purpose to give us everything good that he could possibly imagine to give us for all eternity. That is how he's working for us. Uh, that all things includes justification, verse 33. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Is it, God? it is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God interceding for us. No, we are, there is no one who can condemn us. We are utterly justified. That is a central part of the, the good things that God gives us. But as he has been saying, that justification leads on to life. Verse 34. Who, uh, uh, sorry, verse um, uh, 35 that life which is a life in relationship with Christ. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, verse 37, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In all these things, that is trouble and hardship and danger and sword will come to us, quite possibly, we are not victors over all these things. We cannot get past these things. But in all these things, we find God working this steady purpose in our lives to bring us to him, to give us an unbreakable, unstoppable relationship with Christ. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our 
Lord. In a world where things change and do not last, this lasts. God made you a Christian. He's going to take you to eternity. God set his love upon you. He has given you an unstoppable relationship with him. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. God predestined you. God uh, justified you. Well, God will take you to glory. And there is no evil in this world that has any independent power that can stop him. In all these things, God works for the good of those who love him. How do you think that should make us um, walk as we walk out of this door? How do you think that should make us live? Surely it should make us live as people who are not afraid, who are not fearful of what's coming round the, the, the corner. Because there's nothing that can do me ultimate harm that is coming round the corner, not even my death. Surely it should make us people who are confident. Surely it should make us people who are who feel absolutely secure in our relationship with God because there is nothing that will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Surely it will make us people who want to tell that good news to the world. It is the most extraordinary good news, says Paul. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he says. It's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Because it's good news about a God who tells us, I put you right with me by faith. You are justified by faith. I place my love upon you which infuses life into you now and will give you eternal life and nothing can stop it. And so you are the most privileged people in the world. That's the gospel. That is thoroughly, thoroughly good news. Because the God who told us is faithful.